Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 47. I'm going to start reading, and then I'll make some comments as we're going through, and I'm reading here, and then we'll come to the points that I want to make as we talk about doctrine. So Luke chapter 20, verses 27 onwards. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Now, just a quick note, the Sadducees are ref referring here to the practice of Leverite marriage, which is described in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And that was an ordinance that God gave to the children of Israel at that time, as they're just starting out as a nation as such. And he says to them that to preserve the family line, if one, if the husband dies and if there's a brother that can then take this woman for his wife and then bear children in the brother's name, then that would need to be done. This was something that was unique to that time as such. And there's a, a reason for why God had instituted it. But the Sadducees, the Sadducees are not asking this question because they're trying to understand something about that nature of the marriage. They were people who did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you died, you died. You were done. And there's a, there's a Jewish belief in terms of Sheol and some other things that they were holding to. And so they did not believe in resurrection. And that's why they're asking this question. So they're not really trying to understand what Deuteronomy 25 was saying. They're using that as a way to sort of trap Jesus or to go after him. And their contention is that if you're raised from the dead, then how could you possibly untangle all the things that happened during your life and after you die, right? And especially you know, quite common or it could happen that you know, a spouse dies and you remarry and so on. And so they're asking this question in this way. The mistake that they're making is that they're assuming that life in heaven, now, Keep in mind, they're not believing in the resurrection, but they're, even if they don't believe in it, they're saying, well, the way that we think of this, life in heaven with God, if there is that life after death, it's just like life on earth, except that it's a little better, a little happier, a little bit more pleasurable. And so they ask Jesus, whose wife will she be? You know, how will, how will those two, you know, like who, who will have the pleasure of having that relationship there in, in heaven. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, in the account, in what's written about the burning bush, when even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, 
the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law, and in some of your translations it'll say the scribes, but the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. By the way, the ones that are very supportive of Jesus right now are people who believe that there is a resurrection. So here's the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who do believe in the resurrection. And when Jesus gives a response that seems to, you know, to counter the Sadducees' belief system, the Pharisees are happy. They're, they're, they're just a few verses ago and a few chapters ago and all through this, what are we reading? Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus. But here, when Jesus supports what they say or what they think, they say, good answer. Good answer, Jesus, good answer. Now, the next part of what comes up, it's kind of an abrupt transition in Luke because it says, then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, that's Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Luke just jumps to the punchline or to the bottom line, I should say, in terms of how Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. But if you read in Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, the same account of this interaction between the Sadducees and Jesus and Jesus interacting with them about this this marriage question and resurrection and so on. In that section of scripture, Matthew 22 verses 41 through 46, there it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And then he goes into this response, same, same type of response. What's happening? The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, good answer, good answer. They're, they're, they're publicly saying, Jesus, you, you, you seem to know the truth. You, you gave a good answer. So Jesus says, by the way, you Pharisees who think that I'm giving you a good answer, who do you say the Messiah is? Whose son is he? And they go, well, son of David. And then he says, okay, but the word of God, Psalm 110 says that David calls the Messiah, who is to come later, Lord. How did he do that? And he puts the Pharisees on the spot, right? So Jesus is, is using these opportunities and pointing out to the people and getting them to consider what's the truth behind these things. Don't just say something. Don't just do something. Don't just say, well, good answer. When in fact, there's a whole bunch of other things that you are holding on to. And that's what I'm building to, right? So let's continue in Luke. Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware, beware of the teachers of the law. Who? Scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who just came and said to him, good answer. The ones who believe in the resurrection, who rightly believe in the resurrection. He's saying, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, 
make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now the Sadducees, they were a sect, a group within Judaism. So you had the Pharisees, the Essenes, the others, you know, other groups. There were some other groups, Jacobites and all this kind of thing. There was, and then there was the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had various responsibilities, including the maintenance of the temple in Jerusalem. And they had points of difference with the, with the Pharisees in terms of ritual purity, what you, you should do, what you should not do, and so on. And as we see in this passage, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So this, this question comes up. How is it that people who are reading the same set of scriptures, right, they're reading the same Old Testament books, and in particular the Torah, the books of Moses, the five books, right, the books of the law. They're reading the same thing, and yet they come to a completely different conclusion. During one of our Q&A sessions, a question was raised, if so many people believe so many different things in the, in the body of Christ, and then that particular Q&A session, we were talking about end times and rapture and millennium and you know, so on. And the question was, how is it possible that we can read the same set of scriptures and come up with such a different response? The rapture takes place before the tribulation, after the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, after the millennium, before the millennium, you know, no millennium. I mean, we come up with all sorts of different things. How does that happen? How does the same group of people or a group of people reading the same scripture come up with different things? And that leads us this morning to consider this question of doctrine. Doctrine is simply our belief or our set of beliefs that we hold on to and that we teach or propagate. Every faith group, every religion, every sect, every Christian denomination, every church, either explicitly or implicitly have specific doctrines that they adhere to, right? Now, for a Christian, there are what we would refer to as sort of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And when I state these, you know, if you have any questions on these, you can follow up later and ask and, you know, come back to this. And I'll, as we go through this time together, you should be able to follow where I'm going. But let me just put up some of these basic doctrines of the Christian faith. The first one is this doctrine of God. We believe that God is one, one God. That he is infinite, that he is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, he is all-present. That these are the characteristics of God, this one true God, this living God, this God that is above all gods. We say, this is what he is like. But we also say that there are these immutable characteristics of this God, these unchanging characteristics about God, that he is loving, that he is faithful, that he is just, that he is merciful, that he is holy, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have these basic beliefs about God. There's a whole lot more to be said about God, but I'm just quickly summarizing some things. Another point that we would make is this doctrine of God's revelation, what he has made known to us. And the Bible, it, these words are not used there in terms of this concept of general and special 
revelation, but general revelation would be when the Romans, when the book of Romans tells us that creation itself tells us that there's a God. There's a general revelation given to all human beings that there is a God, that you didn't come up by accident, that we didn't just appear, that the only thing that took place that we went from nothing to something was that God created, right? And there's this idea of the general revelation to man. But then there's also this idea of special revelation, that God actually spoke, that God actually intervened, that God actually came into the world, that God actually became a man, that God actually gave us his word. So general and special revelation. And then we believe that that word that he has given us is, is his inspiration, written by human beings, but inspired by God. We believe that that word is inerrant, that it, it is true, there is no error in the word that God has given us, that it is illumination, it, it opens our eyes. The Bible says that spiritual eyes are opened by the power of God to see the truth and to understand it. And that the authority of the word of God allows us to deal with life and godliness in all manner of ways that it gives us that kind of authority to live in the kingdom of God. So we believe the certain things about God's revelation. We believe certain things about God's plan for humanity. We believe that God created us in his image. He wanted us to reflect who he is, his characteristics. And he's given us life so that we will be walking in the fullness of life that he has ordained for us. There is a, there is a purpose and a plan in the creation of God of human beings. But in the fact that we, are, we have committed sin, we believe that God's plan for humanity, even before the creation of the world, was to ensure that we could be redeemed from our sins, that we could be received to him as his children, and that one day we would be restored in full when he returns, and we would be part of eternity. We would live in eternity with him, resurrected and live in eternity with him, that we would be restored to glory. So that's a doctrine. There. Again, these are very summarized statements, right? about God's plan for humanity. The other one, the next thing I would say is that there is God's plan for the church. We believe that the church, universal, is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm not going into details on those phrases. We've talked about some of these things in other messages, but this is the nature of God's work in the church, that he has a plan and a purpose and a way in which we collectively are in Christ. And then in that function as the body of Christ, we are united in serving one another and in stewarding the resources of God, the things that God has given us. And in doing that, we grow as disciples. We spur one another we encourage one another, we pray for one another to grow as the disciples of Christ, right? So again, God's doc plan for the church. And then there is a doctrine, there's God's plan for the future. We believe in the second coming of Jesus. We believe that there's a resurrection. We believe that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a lot of detail, again, associated with all of these things, but at least at a very high level, these are some of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees, the, in that interaction, there are at least three important points for us to learn 
and to apply. Here's the first one. Doctrine has to be based on scripture. Notice how Jesus responds to the Sadducees. So in verse 37, Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And when he says, in the account of the burning bush, he's talking about what Moses had recorded in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. At that time, there were no numbers, by the way. It was just written all as one narrative or one book. And Moses is recording his interaction with God at the burning bush. He sees the burning bush. He goes up to investigate. God speaks to him. And God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. It is God who identifies himself in this way to Moses. But Jesus is using that scripture, that reference, to respond to these people. He doesn't just say, yeah, yeah, resurrection is true. You, you, know, you, you don't have it right. He says, what does it say? What does the scripture say? Go back and look at the scripture. You know the scripture. What does it say? Why would God identify himself as the God of the dead? No, he does not. He identifies himself as the God of the living. And he is saying, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Look at that. That shows you there is a resurrection after death. Or there is life after death. That's what Jesus is saying. So, and, and, and to make this connection between Jesus' responses, and by the way, this is not the first time, and multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry, you'll see, he refers to scripture. He doesn't just say things, right? He'll refer to some scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy extensively, and even all the way to the cross, even when he is on the cross, he is quoting scripture so that the people who hear him would be reminded of that scripture and would go back to that scripture and say, oh, this is what he's talking about. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just, that. he's not saying that out of his humanity as such or his pain. He's quoting the scripture. He's quoting the Psalms so that you would go back and read that Psalm and say, oh, they've pierced me. They, you know, they, that rest of the Psalm is a Psalm of that suffering Messiah on the cross. That's what Jesus is alluding to. And so he speaks in this way. But let me make that connection here with the response to the Sadducees even more explicit by going back to Matthew. Because in Matthew, about this interaction, Matthew adds one more detail. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, it says, Jesus replied, Jesus replied to the Sadducees, you are in error what about the resurrection? You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Why do you show up with all these funny beliefs and everything else and have this stuff? Because you don't know the scripture. That's what Jesus is saying. So doctrine has to be based on scripture. Our beliefs cannot be based on extra biblical or unbiblical sources. It cannot be based on persuasive leaders or eloquent you know, expression. It cannot be based on rich tradition. Oh, I've done, you know, we've done this for you know, thousands of years and ooh, you know, rich tradition, you know, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. No, it can't be based on that. It can't be based, based on familiar practices or customs. It can't be based on emotional reaction. It can't be based on us saying, oh, it makes me feel so good. 
oh, I, you know, uh, when I do this, I feel the presence of God. It makes me feel, so therefore it must be right. No, we've got to go back and say, is this in line with the scripture? Does it line up with what God has said to us? And so our beliefs have to be based on the scripture and the power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit to teach us. This is what Jesus said. John chapter 16, he said that the Holy Spirit will teach you, will instruct you, will give you the means to understand the word of God. You got to go to that. So, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. People are writing this down, but the Bible is saying, this scripture that we're reading was breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. Scripture gives us the means by which we can know what is right, what is true, as we read it, study it, go after it. So why do we come up with so many different beliefs? Why so many different doctrines? Wouldn't it be that we would have one set of things for the church in the world and everybody would say, yep, yep, sure, no problem, got it. Well, in Titus chapter one, verse 10, and going on, starting in verse 10 and going on into chapter two, verse one, it says this. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception especially those of the circumcision group. Paul is speaking specifically of the, of the Judaizers. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then again, let me keep reading in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a, num a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
we can be misled into incorrect beliefs because of wrong teaching, because we want to hear what satisfies our carnal desires, because we think that godliness is a means of financial gain, because our minds have not been transformed, or because we are deceived. Now, as I read these verses and I emphasize that our doctrines must be based on the scriptures, you may be thinking, sitting here, listening online, I'm so glad that I know the scriptures and believe what is right. You have been taught the scriptures from a very early age. You have memorized maybe the whole Bible or large portions of it. You can quote it. You know how to respond to any question with a verse. And you'll be right where the Pharisees were, full of pride and self-righteousness. Because the way that we look at these charges from the Bible, from Paul and Timothy and others, we can't look at these verses and say, it's about you. You don't believe right. I do. We really have to look at ourselves and say, God, what am I holding on to? What do I believe? Because you see, being right in one or even many doctrines doesn't mean you're right in every doctrine. The Pharisees and the scribes, the other teachers of the law, they were quick to commend Jesus when he responded to the Sadducees. But they wanted to be affirmed in what they believed. They wanted Jesus to say, your belief is right. Even though they, didn't, they were trying to kill him. But notice what Jesus says in verses 46 and 47. Right? He says, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around, they do all these things. But they're actually not doing the right things. And in many other passages, we saw that Jesus was very harshly critical of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They may have gotten many things right in terms of what they believed. They were correctly interpreting the scriptures that there is a resurrection. They were defending their doctrines, but they also got many things wrong. The most striking thing is that these same teachers of the law did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. They rejected him, crucified him. These men, these people, who had right doctrine in so many different ways, missed the most obvious, most visible thing right in front of them. They missed Jesus. We have a tendency to think that if we have one or multiple truths right, then we must have all truths right. In fact, we have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves and of our own points of view. We think to ourselves and many times even say it out loud, they just don't have good teaching. They haven't studied the Bible like me. They're not in the right church. That's why they have bad beliefs. But the admonition of the very scriptures that we hold dear is that we have to be willing to examine what we believe, to give up what we think is right for the sake of the Lord and, what, and pay attention to what he says is true. 
we have to humbly, we have to be humbly willing to listen to others. We have to be willing to admit when we are wrong. We have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to be corrected. And we have to be willing to live according to what we believe, or at least profess to believe. Because this other thing that Jesus makes clear in these verses, particularly in verses 46 and 47, is our doctrines need to be apparent in our daily lives. If you say that this is what I believe, this is my worldview, then that should be made manifest to the world around you according to how you live. People who listen to you or watch what you do should be able to clearly know what you believe. But if you're saying God is love and you're not loving, if you say God is just and fair but you're not fair, you don't show mercy. If you will say God forgives but you don't forgive, the world around you says you seem to say one thing about what you believe but you live in a completely different way from what you say. That's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. He said you say all these things and you even, you even have right doctrine about them. But the way you live you're taking advantage of widows and you're you know, trying to get for your own gain and you're condemning people and you're putting burdens. He's, he's hard on them. Do you believe in what the Bible says about God? About your identity in Christ? About salvation? About money? About giving? About prayer? about bearing the fruit of the Spirit, about ministering the gifts of the Spirit? Do you believe what the Bible says about marriage, about parenting, about your job, about the church, about sharing the gospel and making disciples, about spiritual warfare, about persevering in the race that is set before us? Do you believe what the Bible says about the future? And let me ask you, does your living match your believing? Does your living match your believing? Will people look at your life and say, I know what they believe. I know what's in their hearts. Philippians chapter 3 verse 16 says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. The truth has been given for us. Let us live up to God's truth, not our version of it, not our perception, not our convenience, but what is the truth. You see, as we live up to what God has given for us and what we should attain or how we attain and live up to that, I, this is not at all to suggest that our works will save us. They don't. This doesn't mean that if you consistently practice what is a wrong belief or live out what is a wrong belief, that somehow that validates the belief. It doesn't. It's not that if a large group of people believe what you do, then it's good. It, you know, you're okay. And you can say, well, they can't all be wrong, so I must be, I must be right with them. No, the Bible doesn't say that. They could all be wrong. 
you could all be wrong. And that doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that if our actions, some action that we're taking, gets some result, that we can say, see, then it must be that what I believe is right. Lots of people get all sorts of results. Question is, is it truly what is true? Is it godly, biblical beliefs? And just as we can become proud of our knowledge of the scripture, I know the word of God. You know, you can't, you can't, you know, I'll tell you what's right. We can become proud of our behavior. We can say, we practice all the right things. We do all the right things. Those people, they don't. And we can point to our good works for our credentials. Look at this. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 21. Longer portion of scripture, but I want to read this whole thing out because this is a good way to summarize some of these things that we've been talking about in previous weeks and particularly this week. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, free, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. 
turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. We can respond to the word of God and to what the charge of the word of God is by eagerly desiring truth. This morning, even as we were reminded that we would hunger and thirst, that we would be like that deer that panteth, pants for the righteousness, for the truth of God, for God himself. That we would say, Lord, I need you. I need to understand you. I'm not holding on to my traditions, my doctrines, my denominational statement. I'm not holding on to all of that. I'm holding on to you. And as I hold on to you, Lord, I want to search the scripture. I want to know the word of God. And I'm praying, oh, Holy Spirit, that as I receive teaching and instruction, as I engage in conversation and discussion, as I grapple with the word of God and wrestle with it, and as I yield to the Holy Spirit to teach me, I'm praying for the scripture to come alive in me, to give me the illumination of the truth so that I will see, I will open my eyes, I will open my ears, I will hear your word, I will see your word, and I will say, this is what is true. And Lord, in the ways in which I don't get it, in the ways in which I have gone astray, show me, lead me back, help me to say I was wrong, help me to come to you, to you. I want to search the scriptures, and I want to apply the scriptures. I'm not applying what somebody else tells me. I'm applying what God tells me. Now he may speak through somebody. He may speak through a person in a pulpit. He may speak through a book that you read. He may speak through something you watch. He may speak to you through a song. But when the Lord is speaking to you, and you know that the Lord is speaking to you, be obedient. Come to the truth. Those of you who are listening to me, and if you don't know this Lord Jesus, who will speak truth to you because he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That Lord Jesus, who can speak to us and give us this truth himself because we come to know him in that intimate relationship. This is the God that can direct how we believe and our doctrines, our sound doctrines. So we eagerly desire the truth. We search the scriptures and we apply the scripture. You say, Lord, I want to walk this out. I want to live according to your word. Now, this morning, I want to give you a point of application that's very practical. I would like for everybody online, everybody here, everybody who listens to this, to go to our church website. And on our church website, there's a section that says about when you click on that, it says our beliefs. And when you click on that, it lists 16 statements of belief. Now, it could have been a list of 50. It could have been a list of 100. But there is a page there that lists out 16 statements of belief about God and sin and salvation and church and baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit and communion and coming of Jesus and prayer and worship. 
16 statements. I want to encourage you that this week you would go and look at that. And you would say, you know, read them through in order, and you would see whether you believe those things. Just take a look. If you have questions, raise the question. If you have feedback, provide feedback. But I want to encourage you this week that you would look at these statements of belief that we are making as a church and say, do I, do I believe this? And again, like I said, there could, it could have been a much longer list. It's not exhaustive. It's not meant to be exhaustive. It's just covering some of the basic statements of belief. In addition, I encourage you to be praying this week and to say, God, help me. What have I held on to that actually I should not hold on to? And it doesn't matter whether you've come from a family or a background where you knew the scriptures right from birth, right? Your parents were speaking scriptures to you. They were playing music to you. They were, you know, even when you were in the womb, they were reading the Bible, you know, and getting, and so you were born hearing the scriptures. You, you may have been in that situation. Wonderful. Praise God for that. I asked the Lord, have I held on to something as a doctrine? Not because it's in the Bible, but because that's what I did or my parents did. Or you may have grown up never knowing the scripture. Or you grew up in a completely non-Christian environment. Or you grew up in a church environment as such, but what they emphasized were the practices of the church, not of the word of God. And I would ask you, I would challenge you this, this week, go back and say, God, what, what am I holding on to? What do I really believe? And am I living what I believe? Every week, and I'm going right into this section on our, what we remember and what we are blessed in because I want to just transition into that. Every week on Sunday mornings as we are doing this, as we think about how we apply the word of God, we want to remember to die to self and be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. And what I want to encourage you, is that we never hold to a position of belief, even if you're right, with pride, with self-righteousness. The Pharisee looked at the sinner who was there praying with him, and he said, oh God, I'm, I thank you that I'm not like this man. Oh God, I thank you that I know what is right. I thank you that I do what is right. I pray that we would die to self, and our pride, our self-seeking, our self-righteousness. And we'd say, Jesus, I want to be raised up to new life in you. I don't want to look at my brother or my sister or anybody else who may have a wrong doctrine even. I don't want to look at them and, with condemnation. I want to look at them with mercy, with love, with compassion. And as the Bible says, if by any means I can lead them to the truth, I can share with them what you have shown me. I can, I can encourage them to come to you. Let me do that. That's where the Lord calls us to.
Let's stand together. I want to pray this or speak this word of blessing over you this morning. And for those of you who are online. Every week, we want to receive the promises, the power, and the presence of God to live and to walk in the truth of God according to the scripture. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, based on 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, and then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse, verses 1 through 3, I want to speak this word of blessing over you. To each one of you, that the Lord would bless you in these ways. And you receive this word, this blessing, whichever way that the Lord would prompt you to. But I want to speak this and say, may you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. May you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God bless.